Welcome to Leadership Recipes. My name is François Moscovici, and I'm a partner at Leadership Consultants White Water Group. I spend most of my week working with leaders, their teams and their boards, but I have another passion, food. I trained as a professional chef, and I have always been fascinated by all aspects of food, be it historical, scientific, artistic, or simply making it and eating it. Leaders tend to travel and experience all types of food. For some, it's an opportunity to explore. For others, it's a risk they'd rather avoid. Food often represents who we are, so I thought I'd ask them about their relationship to food, starting with their favorite recipe. From vegans to horse meat lovers, from I can't boil an egg to accomplished cooks, from Epicureans to those always in a hurry, I interview leaders from all walks of life about their favorite recipe, how it became so, and what it means to them in the context of their role. In part two of each episode, I discuss the recipe, what it should look and taste like, and give you tips either to make it quickly or to impress your guests at the weekend. The recipes themselves are in the episode notes. Happy listening and happy eating. Hello and welcome to another episode of Leadership Recipes. It is my pleasure to introduce Paul Oliver, who is the finance director of Care Dorset, an organization providing residential and non-residential care services in the county of Dorset, of course. He's also an advocate for better healthcare in the UK, and he's putting the final touches to a new book called Don't worry, it's only a patient. Paul was an associate fellow in strategic planning at the University of Oxford, but before that he had various leadership roles to telecom giant BT. As he puts it, I have run every activity except HR. This included bits of finance, customer services, group strategic planning even, and he also ran part of the technical activity when he had 2,000 engineers under his watch. So our story starts when he joins BT. So I joined BT as I was just about to qualify as an accountant or a degree in business studies. And I joined just after privatisation. So this was a real growth phase. As as Lord Valance, as the chairman of the company once described it, the dinosaur came blinking into the light. So the BT privatisation was partly driven by the need for access to capital to grow the business. So BT went from being a a UK-based copper wire business to a pretty much global business with internet and data rather than voice. So it was an interesting journey. As part of that, people like me were developed and given opportunities to do different things. So I worked in finance for a good part, became a sort of finance director of that 500 million pounds business or something and beat in. And they said, well, we're in the same unit. Would you like to run a bit of India? No, it wasn't the same unit, actually, that was in a larger business when there was a a new uh, direction for BT that I was then offered the opportunity to run a consultancy business with our own and then they, from that, so we did such a good job, they were let you run some engineering. So it was, you know, they, BT were excellent in development and that's, you know, you and I met at Oxford and the reason I got to Oxford was not on the strength of my academic ability, but on the, the fact that BT were prepared to sponsor me through a program there, which was absolutely life-changing. So BT were very good at investing in people and training people, and I was one of the beneficiaries of that. Excellent. Well, and, and the rest is history, as we say. As I say, yeah. Okay. So let's start with the theme of this of this podcast. What part does food play in your life? Well, I think food plays, a, in my life, it plays a very important part, sometimes an unhealthy part, but always a pleasurable part. But in my role, I would observe that as people age, and I'm 
no longer in the first flush of youth, but I work obviously with quite a lot of older people. Food becomes really important because it's one of the few pleasures that doesn't sort of deteriorate over time. You know, it, maybe at the end of life it perhaps does, but yeah, you know, when you can't quite do the things you used to be able to do, you can still enjoy a meal, whether it's cooking it yourself or going out to a restaurant or going to the pub with your friends or whatever. Um, you know, if you go to any pub, any lunchtime, you'll, fit, you'll see little gaggles of retired people sitting and enjoying lunch together, which is fantastic. And so maybe starting with your early relationship with food but you know what was food like when you grew up yeah i, I was raised on one of those um, big post-war council estates in essex so it's very much traditional english food very stodgy you know kind of mash and you know meat and two veg and you know as i say, i come from that part of the world where the culture is very much the east end culture so pie and mash i can remember my father worked for the water board as it was called in those days now thames water and used to bring home, home on a sassy live eels that he caught in the filter beds and so we'd have eel and mash not my favorite i must say but you know it was a very east end fair you know Jelly to eel was another great one that I don't particularly like either. But uh, that was it. That was as I was growing up. As I matured, and you know, it's going to be my recipe today, I ended up for reasons too deep to go into today to spending some time in Sri Lanka with a guest and a very eminent surgeon. And I already had some Sri Lankan friends, so I'd, I got used to Sri Lankan food. That was very different. The sort of the spicy, you know, Asian foods. Is it is it very comparable to South Indian food, or is it is it more different? It is somewhat, but it, it is there are some there are some key differences. So the the dish I'm going to talk about today is is a dish you'll find at any Indian restaurant, but with a, a Sri Lankan twist to it, if I can put it that way. Like so, so yes, it, it's very, but it. It differs between a number of ethnic races in Sri Lanka, as you'll know, it's, it's caused some difficulties to that country over the time. So the Tamil people tend to be, their food tends to be hotter, spicier than the Sinhalese. But frankly, when you go there as a 21-year-old Englishman, everything just tastes really spicy. <laughs> and the lady I say, though, I say with the Tamil family, and she would prepare for me, or actually, in truth, the servants would prepare for me, meals that became progressively hotter over the week or so, I you know started to stay with them and to get me adjusted to it and I do I do like spicy food now but I don't like it very hot I must say but um, yeah I think probably I say I don't like it very hot but if you tasted the food that you know I sometimes eat and prepare you might say it's a bit spicy poor <laughs> but kind of, I've been I've been transformed into a sort of part time Sri Lankan really. Mm. And I, I must say, when I went when I went for work uh, to India, you know, there was always the the question, you know, how spicy do you like your food? And I said the last thing I'm going to do is to have a, you know, uh, a, a big spice match with you. So I will say, Absolutely. I will say, you know, mid mid continent spicy, but nothing 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 challenging. And as you go further south, of course, it gets it gets hotter and hotter. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Because the the curry was basically invented to preserve food when you work in the fields. Yeah. So when you see those tiffin boxes in in the subcontinent, and people do actually take those to work or school or whatever, and you know it's pretty hot, hot mm. work out there. The thing to remember is, if you're ever having food that's too too hot, never drink water and certainly don't drink beer. Have a good spoonful of yogurt, and that will cool it down nicely. Sure. And do you know, and do you know why that is? I don't actually. Okay, so I'll, I'll do a little intervention on spicy on spicy food. So, essentially, mustards. So that's wasabi and, and mustard and all, all all the you know and horseradish. These are all short molecules which are uh, water soluble. So you can drink water and this will dilute the effect. Whereas uh, you know the capsicum, 
family molecules are actually liposoluble and therefore drinking water will do nothing. You need something fatty. So yogurt, essentially, but even, even bread and butter will, will do, will do the job. So, you know, pour down fat down your throat. <laughs> so, you know, a, a full, a full, a full I, milk lassie would, would, would do the job. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do love lassies, as well, but I'm not talking about that as a recipe today. And uh, yes, jelly deal. I must say that, that we had the office in in in, in Southwark. There were, the, I think, it's the last restaurant in South London that served jelly deal. So I, I did give, I did, I did try it once, and uh, I did envy you growing up on it. That's where this uh, one. Uh, not my favourite. My brother still, my brother still eats it. He likes it. But my father didn't. He he died recently, but me, he would still eat that. But you know, I can I could stomach pie and mash, but it's not. Or cuisine, is it, in that? Absolutely. So, and what role, if any, has food played at work for you? So, I suppose it's in two parts, really. Um, so, when I was kind of in, you know, senior middle management roles, I worked really hard. You know, a good breakfast was really important, but always not always a healthy breakfast. So, typically, you know, bacon rolls, all that stuff. Lunch was always on the run. And then I'd come home quite late, and I'd probably snack on the way home and things like that. So, so food wasn't always good in that sense. However, I think it also raises an awareness of you know, the need to change. So I think it, you kind of become aware that your habits that you're building through food are not always the best ones for you. So I think I probably then move towards healthier choices and I probably need to do a bit more work on that still. But I think in terms of that part of my, my life, that was one part. The second part is when you start getting into senior roles, you're expected to do more client entertainment. You end up being, you know, someone who's eating for the company they work for. And then the third part is in the sector working now in care. I realised just how important good, nutritious food is with choice, and you don't always get that in in our sector. And we need to do something about that. We don't always have well-trained chefs. So one of the initiatives I've got in my current business is to look at basically how we source the ingredients. Yeah, if you could only buy from a wholesaler a frozen loaf, that's not exactly appetizing, you know, and we need to support our, our chefs to become more proficient. So we're looking at sending them away to, to help them train, you know, in a sort of fun way. So we'll send them off to one of these sort of gastro places and have a bit of fun with them so they can maybe raise their aspiration a bit. They're not really expected to be, often not expected to be chefs in care, they're expected to be cooks. The upper end of the market, there are proper chefs and sometimes they come from really good restaurants too. But uh, that's not the case for all of our sector and we need to do something about that. This reminds me of the famous or uh, infamous Turkey Twizzlers story about yeah. school meals where, where, where there was a budget of I think 30, 32 pence per child per meal. That was about five, six years ago. Today, those chefs and cooks, what do they what do they work with in terms of budget? Is it a couple of pounds or is it what or what? That's what a bit do? more than that. I mean, it'll, be, it'll vary between, I would say, depending on where you're at, probably between four and eight quid. Um, uh, and that, can, that's, that's per meal, not per day. That's per person per week. That's, per week? Wow. Yeah. So that's just the ingredients. So there's a lot goes into keeping costs under control. So it varies, it varies a bit about the way people measure it and all that sort of stuff. But I think there is an awareness that it's more important. But if you, the more important issue, I think, rather than the, the cost of it so much, is the attitude, actually. So if you are unfortunate enough to become unwell and you can no longer look after yourself and you need care at home, you might get a carer will come in four times a day. They'll get you up in the morning, give you breakfast, come back at lunchtime and give you some lunch, come back in the afternoon to 
you some supper and then finally come back and, and you just put you to bed. However, carers are not allowed to cook. So everything you have must be microwavable. And that's okay if you've got family nearby who cook you some food and, you know, occasionally you have a nice hot meal and your family come around. But if you don't have family around you, effectively what we say in our system of healthcare is that for the rest of your life, you have to have microwave meals. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm just as happy to have a microwave meal when I'm on the run as anybody else. But I don't think I want to live for the rest of my life. So we need to take food more seriously. The cost is an important part of it, but don't think it's the most important part of it. The most important part of it is giving people choice to eat what they like when they like, so that if you're having breakfast, you can choose to have a hot meal or porridge or cornflakes or whatever it is you want, as you would at home. Um, I was in a care home once where I met a man, frankly, he shouldn't have been in the care home. He, was, he had a learning disability, a bit frail, was walking on a frame, but he was perfectly capable of living in the community if we'd have come up with that solution. As I met him, I said, oh, where are you off to? And he said, oh, I'm going to go and get a cup of tea and a piece of cake. I said, oh, that's great. And uh, the carer said, now, now, you know, it's only quarter past four. It's not, we don't do that until half past four. Now, I don't know about you, Francois, but when I want a snack, I don't say, oh, I can't do it to half past four. I go and have the cup of tea and a piece of cake or a biscuit or whatever it is I want at the time I want. And that's what yeah. the care doors are trying to do more of. So this is about supporting people to live the life they want to live. Changing attitudes, absolutely. Yeah, and food's a really important part of that. So let's move to your recipe. So tell me. Okay. So what have you chosen and and why have you chosen it? So I've chosen uh, a dish called Paripu, spelled P-A-R-I-P-P-U. Really? And that is a Sri Lankan version of dal. Okay. okay. I absolutely love lentils. I could eat Paripu for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I would never complain. I, I just love that. I've loved that from... The first time I had it, a friend's place, his wife made it for me, and I was a very young man, and I just love it. So the difference between Sri Lankan paripu and the sort you might consume in an Indian restaurant is it's a lot crunchier. Might not be the right way to explain it, but it's it's cooked so the lentil grains are just breaking and becoming soft. So quite often in Indian restaurants, you get quite quite watery, almost soup-like, and you know. I'll eat that because I love lentils, but it's not as good as the authentic Sri Lankan paripu. So I suppose the reason I've chosen it is, first of all, I think there are some interesting parallels about about business life and, and the approach to life. And when you think about what paripu does, the other thing is, it's, for me, it's quite nostalgic because I had a life-changing experience in Sri Lanka when I went there and stayed there. I was only a young man, never really been outside the UK other than to, I think, to France for a day or something. So you can imagine getting off a plane into the tropics as a 21-year-old and thinking, boy, this is really different. It was it was a real eye-opener, and I got an appreciation of a very ancient culture. You know, with my ancestors were still wearing blue woad. Uh, they had a very um, highly developed uh, society with incredible irrigation systems that do a, an inch in a mile drop to irrigate crops. It was a, it was a, you know, I just couldn't believe it. So that food because I love it so much, became very important to me as a nostalgic reminder of Sri Lanka. And I like my paripus to be cooked absolutely properly and authentic. Uh, so that's why I've chosen it. And what sort, of, what sort of lentil do you use in it? Just the only red lentil. Um, red lentil. But, okay. Yeah, but you can, you can use what are called urudu, the black lentil. So my son, for example, my son's a very good cook of all foods, but particularly Sri Lankan food, because my wife is Sri Lankan, I should say. So, oh, okay. so he, he yeah. is, he's got Sri Lankan culture too. So he is a very good cook and he loves rudu. 
Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I prefer to think, my dear, we were out having um, dinner at a restaurant in, in London because one of my wife's nieces had come over from Oslo on a business trip just this week. And, uh, you know, when we were ordering, there's a, there's a very particular um, dish that Sharon can eat called hoppers. They're like a pancake cooked in a, a hemispherical pan. And they go very thin. You can put an egg in the middle, or you can have some plain, or you can put milk. Um, and you use that like a like a naan bread to eat, but they're they're smaller than naan bread. And so we were ordering those because you they're, they're quite difficult to make. You can't get them everywhere, and you need a proper gas burner to cook them. Um, so we decided to order those, and we were saying, "What should we?" Eat? And you know, my son Dominic said, "Go have some dal." You know, so he, he he's picked up that from his father. I think it must be in the genes. Excellent. And do you do you eat do you eat it as a side or as a main? What's what what's the position? Well, I I think you're probably, probably you're supposed to. In truth, it's supposed to be a side, but I will have it as a main. I I would you know you could. It's a very yeah, versatile but, dish when it's when it's cooked, so it's not too runny. Good. You could you can eat it obviously with other vegetable curries or you know fish curry or a meat curry or whatever. I liked I like it so much. I would eat a lot of it. So <laughs> you know I. Kind of forego other curries yeah. for that, um, but you can eat it with rice. You can eat it with naan. You can eat it with hoppers. You can eat it with just bread. I mean, it's yeah. it's a pretty versatile dish. Um, and I guess so. If I understand correctly, so it's, you know to make a good one. So you go from just breaking down the lentils to your mainstream dal, which is slightly runny, to the yes. creamy dal where the starches actually combine, and you get back to sort of puree mode. So this is at yes. the beginning of that curve. Yeah. So, so the way you make it, and I'm not saying I'm good at this. I'm definitely not. Um, but I'm practicing. And that's the main thing. Don't sell yourself short. You, 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 you first of all make a paste of garlic, you know, black, black pepper, cumin, and you just make that into a paste and fry that off. And then you put in your mentors, and then you add water. Now, most recipes will say to you put in this much water and put it on a high heat. There's real risk with that, which is if you put in too much water, it will become runny and yeah, the lid breaks down and becomes, you know, just very sludgy. If you don't put enough water, it will burn, particularly on a high heat. Lentils up, sure you know, heat up very quickly and boil very quickly. And if you overdo that, you just end up with a really major washing up task afterwards because it just burns onto the pan. It's an absolute devil to get off. So uh, you have to get that right. And I so I think personally, I think you have to put in the water a bit at a time, just let the lentils do what they do. But it does mean that you have to, first of all, pay attention. You can't just leave it on the stove and wander off to watch the news. Uh, and secondly, you have to be brave enough not to keep adding water when you, 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 when you, when you feel it there's not much water there is there and some people put other things in it like tomato and of course that releases water too so i don't do that personally but i know some people do some people towards the end will put in spinach and that's quite pleasant uh, too but most most people will put in they'll, they'll let the lentils break down they'll put in onions as well they'll put in perhaps green chilies if you want that or black mustard seed so it's a pretty you can adapt the dish to your taste but i think the key thing is it is not to overcook the lentils so it's still got the sort of outlined sense of the case of the lentil. So it's got that crunch to it. I think that's the way to do it. But it is, uh, you, you know, people that have got that off to an art, you know, are rare, I would say. Mm, I'm hungry now. 
Um, uh, it's, it's still early in the morning. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll go to, next time we go to lunch, I'm going to take you to the, the Shrinkham restaurant in Westminster. You'll like it. Ah, well, ah. Do, you, do you want to show what this is with everyone? Damica is called Damica. I think it's called Peninsula Damica uh, now. And it's in Lower Grove, the place I think it's called, just near Buckingham Palace. Okay. But oh, um, other, other Sri Lankan restaurants are available, including Hopper, which is my son's favourite. So uh, uh, they, as you know, suggest do hoppers. Um, so there are increasingly number, an increasing number of Sri Lankan restaurants. You can see that the cafes often around places like South London, and yeah, where there are where the Sri Lankan diaspora are, you you'll find these little cafes popping up, and they're generally very good. So obviously, obviously, the follow up question is, what do you drink with this, and where are you in your own sort of drink journey? Well, I used to. Uh, drink probably more than I should. So I don't. I drink much more moderately now. But I do enjoy a local Sri Lankan beer called Lion Lager. Uh, you can also get Lion Stout, but um, I prefer the Lager. And there are not many places that sell that. There'll be little Sri Lankan boutiques, and some of the restaurants sell it. You know, Damica does sell that. And I just, again, I think it's nostalgia because you know when I went there as a young man, there was a new beer to try and. I tried that, and it just has that lovely nostalgic effect on me. I'm drinking Lion Lager. And I'm, I used to sit on my my wife's family come from a, uh, a town called Cagle. I used to sit with my father-in-law on the veranda in the evening drinking a beer and talking about cricket or whatever, and, and it's just such a delightful experience. He was such a lovely man. And uh, we'd sit there and eat some snacks, or as Sri Lankans call it, short eats rather than like the Irish do. I think it's one of the, one of the reasons that some of the – there's an interesting thing about the Sri Lankan people, they, particularly the singular, the majority people there, their language is peppered with the language of other countries, like they will call wardrobe and Almera, you know, Portuguese word. They will call snack shorties an Irish term because these are people that, you know, came to the country and, uh, yeah, and they, they, they learned to live with. So, so it's an interesting thing. But I used to sit on that, that table around drinking my copious amounts of lion lager and really enjoying the evening before we had dinner. Mm. So thank you for that. That's, that's a real good, good and very full insight on, on both the culture, the recipe and what you, what you do with it. I have a little uh, questionnaire, you know, in the sort of uh, Marcel Proust style questionnaire. Uh, for those who are not familiar with it, it's uh, there was a Victorian era habit of doing quick fire confessions. And so, uh, and Proust was also a famous foodie. So his descriptions from Madeleine, which are quite famous, but also beef and carrot uh, stew are legendary. So are you happy to play with that? I'll, I'll go with it. I might, I yes. might take uh, the advice of counsel that gets too close. Okay. Um, so this is good to straddle both food and, and, and leadership because that's, that's our, our, our joint theme. So what's your favorite virtue in general? Kindness. Kindness. Thank you. I love that Charlie Mackesee book when he said they said well, what do you want to when you what do you want to be when you grow up? And he says kind. That's the best line in the book. I love that book. Sorry, which books that were? I was I was just talking about oh, something. It's the, the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. And uh, I bought that book before it was famous, actually. And I just love it. It's, it's full of some real deep wisdom. But the the bit I like the most in the little boy when I asked what he wanted to be when he grew up was I want to be kind. Fantastic. What is your favourite quality in a peer? I think it's challenge, I think, but in a, a particular way, yeah, not intended to open you up or put you down, but in a way that's intended to develop you. And I, I, An anecdote, when I was at Oxford, we started a workshop on a Sunday, and unfortunately they hadn't worked out the Monday, it was a bank holiday, so getting a speaker for the Sunday evening was pretty tough. We got this particular guy, and he was not very good, and I was walked into my tutorial group afterwards to have a debrief on the speaker. 
and was very, very critical. As you know, I could be a bit waspish at times. And a Dutch colleague said to me, so what you're saying, Paul, is you can only learn from people who agree with you. And I said, I mean, that's a very good point. I've never forgotten that. So I, I like people that would challenge in the right way. And I appreciate, I think diversity of view is really important in life, but also in, in business in particular. If we've got group think, that's a recipe for disaster. But it has to be done in a way that's intended to help, not make a point. Mm. Similarly, what is your favorite quality in a team member? In a team member... I think it's it's a different version of the ability to challenge, but the ability to think out of the box and the ability particularly to question themselves and learn. So I like people that want to push themselves to, to learn more, and I'm really happy to support people with that. I don't particularly like the status quo, and I really detest bureaucracy. So people that are prepared to say, why on earth do we do that? And question that, I value the most. Okay, thank you. What is the most important future trend that affects your business? Well, it's, I think there are three, actually, if I can be a bit, a bit on the fence. So that's not really on the fence. I think the first thing is, yeah, you have to recognize demographics are moving in a way that means we'll need more care. And the way that the system runs at the moment is not good. The, the UK healthcare system is broken. I should also say there is no such thing as a perfect, perfect healthcare system anywhere in the world, but there are ones that perform rather better than the UK. We've had the habit, unfortunately, in the UK of saying, you know, it's the envy of the world. It, it never really has been. The, the stat that's used to claim that, by the way, comes from the Commonwealth Institute in Boston. And it was a report, Mirror Mirror, which was designed to show how bad the US healthcare system was actually. And it showed that the UK healthcare system was the, the best of 11 healthcare systems they analysed. The unfortunate problem was on the measure of outcomes out of 11 countries, the UK was 10th. So whilst we, people were busy going around saying, look at that, we're the best of the world, they kind of skipped over the point that the outcomes were 10th. I don't know you could be the best of the world when the outcome 10th. Yep. So I think that's a big trend is how, what are we going to do about social care? And that's a policy and political problem that is proving very difficult to solve. But for me, that's the key thing, because the demographics aren't going to change, so you're going to have to fix it sooner or later, and it sooner in my view. What's the most important future trend that affects the world in general? Climate change, for sure. Um, that will touch everything else. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I constantly impatient with politicians and their approach to immigration. Everything gets inflated, but, you know, and it results in people who are genuinely fleeing difficult circumstances and they, they become demonised. And that's going to get worse because people where climate change has the biggest effect are bound to want to live somewhere else. Uh, yeah, including including a flooded Bangladesh with 200 million people, for example. Pre precisely. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is a really big problem and it's, and it's a problem for us all. And we need to... So I think that is, for me, if I think about what, what will worry me about my children, my children's children's future that would be it what was your last great restaurant meal i would say actually the bleeding heart yeah it's so but that that's always great so i can't really yeah if you if you flip the question as it was my worst recent restaurant i haven't really had one but the bleeding heart is probably my favorite restaurant okay. i like that the most but i wouldn't want to eat there every day because i just get even fatter than i already am but it, it has been very consistent over the years absolutely yeah. Yeah. what's your last great home dish my last great home dish Beef stroganoff. Great. So I made that for my son last weekend. Mm -hmm. We sort of fight to see who's going to kind of get to, to be the chef. Yes. Um, and uh, because he, he came up on Friday, we, we went out to football match at Liverpool on Sunday. So when he came on Friday, I put beef stroganoff and that was, that was really good. My wife 
thoroughly approved of it and um, and insisted that um, I, I cook some more. It got the vote approved from from Mrs. Owip, so it must be good. <laughs> so so that answers my next question, which is cook or passenger. I think depends. Depends. Mm -hmm. I think I like to cook, but not. I wouldn't want to cook every day. Okay. Be okay. Too much. Yeah. What's your favorite ingredient? Lentils. Yes. What's your least favorite ingredient or most hated, if that? Eels. Okay. Sweet or savory? I think savory. I think savory. Yeah. In which world cuisine country would you like to live? Well, having plugged Sri Lanka so much, actually, I like the Middle Eastern cuisine the best. So uh, I spent a bit of time working in Qatar on and mm -hmm. off. And I, I love the Arabic cuisine, the subtle, the subtle spices. Very good. If you were a chef, who would that be? I think I'll probably be Raymond Blanc, but that is never going to happen. Oh, I like his enthusiasm. He's obviously a very, very brilliant chef, but I actually like, I like his, his approach to staff and I like his approach to life. Mm. Yeah, he's very, he's very rounded in his approach. Yes, you know? he is. Yeah. He's not a super chef, but he does a number of things really well. Yeah. If you were a superhero? Well, let's be honest with you, I think, you know, working care, I think of myself as a superhero because I'm trying to choose a system. I suppose if I, if I, I suppose it has to be Superman because that's the, that's the superhero, the comic I grew up reading as a, as a boy, I used to get it every, whenever it came out, every week or two weeks or whatever it was. And nothing, and nothing wrong, putting, nothing wrong with putting your underwear over your tights. You know, that's just fine. Absolutely. Yes. Don't judge me. Exactly. If you were uh, an artist, an actor or, or a musician, if I were, so I am, I am completely befuddled by art of music because I just don't know how people do it. If I were an artist, I think I would be MC Escher. I love those fractal type pieces and I, I love, I love Escher's work. So I think if I had to be an artist, I'd be MC Escher. Did, are you one of the few people in this world who finished the book uh, Bach, Escher, and uh, whoever else? You know the fragments. I, of... I have not read. I have not read that book, but I will, no. I will look it out now. It's uh, pretty unreadable. Well, it, it's actually well written, but it, its complexity makes it pretty unreadable. I'll send you. I'll send you the details. Yeah, yeah brilliant. That'd be great. Yeah, thanks. Um, and finally, your favorite cookbook: the Salon Daily News Cookbook. That's the that was given to me when I left Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. And I still have it. I'll have to say my wife uses it more than I do. Very good. Okay, Paul, thank you very much. Any final words of wisdom on food or wine and leadership? Yeah, I think, you know, I was thinking about Paripa and why I chose it. One of the things I thought was really interesting about it was when you're trying to change a business, what you know, I'm trying to do with my colleagues right now, there is something about your appetite for risk. So, you know, when you're cooking Paripa, it's can you hold your nerve and not put in too much water? Sometimes you have to use precision with experimentation. It's one of the reasons why my wife uses the daily news cookbook more than I do is because I tend to be more of an experimenter. So I kind of get the sense of addition and I'll play with it. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And and that's the same with trying to get the perfect Paripa. So I think there's something about when you're doing change in an organization and strategy, sometimes, you know, as they start saying, you know, no strategy um, survives first contact with reality. Um, sometimes you just have to go with it and hold your nerve. Sometimes you just have to say, no, we're going to stop doing this now and do something different. I had a boss once who came into my office late one night and said, what's the matter with you? I was obviously frowning or something. And I said, oh, I've got a decision to make. And he said to me, all your decisions are wrong. And I thought, blimey, this is not going the way I wanted it to. And then he said, eventually, your good decisions last a long time. Your bad decisions last no time at all because you change your mind. And I think that's an important thing to remember. You know, both when cooking 
is you don't have to always follow the recipe. You can change your mind, and that is true in business too, and leadership in particular. That's a very wise conclusion, Paul. Thank you very much for your time. And um, I look forward to you know having a good uh, look at the cookbook and eating Sri Lankan food with you next time we meet. That'd be great. And good luck making the parry food with your daughter. Okay. Thank you very good. much. Thank you. Cheers, Francois. Bye. All the best. Bye. I'm Valentine, and in part two of each episode, I'll be joining Francois, my dad, biggest culinary inspiration, and the person with whom I agree and disagree with most in the kitchen. And we'll discuss the recipe itself, where it comes from, what it should look like and taste like. We'll give you some shortcuts to help you make it faster, and some top tips to take the recipe up a notch and impress your guests. Welcome back to part two, where, as usual, I'm joined by Valentine. And we're going to take a deep dive into Paul's favorite recipe. Hello, welcome back. So what is paripu? Well, as Paul explained, it is the Sri Lankan version of dal. Dal varies enormously. If you eat it in Mumbai, it could be black dal, which is almost like a puree. You could also have a very watery, almost soup-like red lentil dal. Or you could even have a deep fried snack uh, called vada. In this respect, it is like other starch-rich foodstuffs, such as polenta or rice. Removing the water allows us to transform the texture and apply different treatments. Being the subcontinent, there are thousands of variations. In terms of name, it seems that the Paripu designation starts towards the tip of the subcontinent, just north of Tamil Nadu. In Sri Lanka, it's also called dal curry or coconut dal. Yeah, so the, the word, so Paripu or Paripu comes from Tamil. I'm afraid I don't know any Tamil but the word seems to mean simply pulse or gram. And um, yeah, what it made me think of is that, um, you know, in our first uh, recipe that we analyzed, shakshuka, the etymology told us that it meant mixture. And so, you know, I think that a lot of a lot of recipes, maybe in languages that we don't know, we think, oh, you know, it's a complex dish, it's a complex name, but really they mean quite simple things. And so it gives you the idea of a recipe that can have a lot of variants because at its core, it just refers to the main ingredient. So something like maybe uh, a risotto in Italian, right? You could have any variant based on the main ingredient, which is your your rice. And uh, actually, as we cooked those dishes together over Christmas, we'll come to that in a second, uh, we did encounter a lot of variation. So I hadn't come across a dish before. It's just Paul that introduced me to it. So I did some homework. I ate it in uh, three different restaurants in London including my neighborhood uh, match and kitchen, which is pretty good uh, in Farringdon. I recommend it. Uh, I also bought a secondhand copy of the Salem Daily News cookbook published in 1929. And it was very interesting to see how changes both to texture and, and flavoring ingredients totally transform the dish. So let's talk about the recipe in general. What are we trying to achieve? In the simplest terms, the texture of a proper, slightly runny Milanese risotto with a kick of spices. This analogy works because you want your lentils almost al dente, and the coconut cream replaces the butter or mascarpone to give gloss and creaminess. The spice kick is provided by a mix uh, of spices, which is shallow fried separately and simply served on top of the paripu. You will come across recipes that mention first coconut milk and second coconut milk, uh, what it means is the number of times you run water through the fresh coconut to create that milk. But most of us use coconut cream or milk from a carton or a tin. So simply use what you find in the tin as the first milk and dilute by 50% 
for the second milk. Uh, as usual, the actual recipes are in the episode notes, along with the video this time. Carry on. Sure. We would like to share three recipes today, which I have called texture, flavor, and restaurant. Texture. This is Paul's recipe. Quick, healthy, and getting the right texture. The second one is flavor. So it's a traditional recipe from 1929. It's not as spicy, but the flavors are really delicate, really subtle. It's a really fun recipe to make if you can go and hunt for the, for the right ingredients. And finally, we have restaurant, which is the most common recipe in restaurants, uh, as well as on YouTube. It packs a punch, and I have modified the one in the video link to preserve the texture, as the example shown uses too much coconut milk to my taste. If you get into cooking paripoo, you will settle on your own blend between these three recipes. So just get cooking. All right, so we're starting with texture. Tell us yep. about texture. So all recipes start with red lentils plus a flavor base. So Paul makes a paste with garlic, black pepper, and cumin. Could be powder or seeds. And then he fries it off gently in a bit of vegetable oil before adding it to the lentils. He continuously supervises his pan to add as little water at a time without burning the preparation. Some recipes ask you to simply cover and let the water be absorbed. I'm happy to do this, but ultimately I prefer to add a bit of water at a time, risotto style. So what I have practiced is to boil a kettle and just keep it by me to top things up, stirring more or less continuously or just shaking the pan to keep the grains whole as much as possible, not to break them. Paul also suggests some additions from tomatoes to spinach that will wilt on contact. He doesn't use coconut oil um, or coconut milk as he watches his cholesterol and he eats a lot of paripoo. As a spicy topping, Paul simply suggests a few mustard seeds and some fried onions fried together briefly. And more often than not, he'll do without keeping the paripoo at its tasty simplest, quick and healthy. Yeah, I think the, the element that I liked from, um, from this first recipe was the simplicity. Because when I've made dal in the past, I made it with quite an elaborate curry base that you make in another pan. Um, it's got maybe more ingredients than the, one, than the one that he suggests. And so this is just slightly more uh, s streamlined, I think, as a, as a recipe. But the result is, is really, really nice. And wh where was your dal recipe from? Uh, it's from the exotic provinces of uh, North London. Elstree and Boromwood, actually. Excellent. Okay, let's move to the second recipe, flavor. Yeah, so this is actually my favorite. For me, this was the big discovery because it doesn't taste like any kind of dal I've had before. Can we talk for a second about the Ceylon Daily News cookery book? It's a very, very strange publication. It is very quaint. It talks about uh, servants and all the things which we don't even uh, remember existed. And it also talks about making ice cream with a, with a salty water. So this is really, really old. It laments the, the basic fiery curries eaten every day up and down the island, but it also makes ample use of chilies and local ingredients. So it's a bit of a, of a not sure where it's going book, but it's, it's actually quite fun to read. So where did, you, where did you find it? Did you actually already have it in your cookbook library? No, no, no. Paul mentioned it. And so I went on AB Books and I I just bought a second-hand copy. I think my imprint is 1965 or something like that. But it's it's, it's got over a thousand recipes from Sri Lanka, so it's a good. Yeah, and it's a um, it's a mix of Dutch, English, Portuguese, India, and uh, Indian, sorry, and uh, Sri Lankan recipes. So it's, yeah, yeah, that's a it's a funny one. Got everything. No. Yeah. So the first thing to to mention is that there are a couple of of hard to find ingredients in it. The first one is called pounded Maldive fish, which is skipjack tuna that has been cured and it's often sold dried. In other words, it's your classic umami bomb in the same category as dried shrimps or anchovies. 
It's used both for taste and texture, although texture is irrelevant here. And so you can happily substitute it with whatever equivalent you have in your pantry. Well, so you mean that in other recipes, the texture would be useful, but not in this one? Not, no, not in, well, in other Sri Lankan recipes, but in Paripu, because the texture comes from the dal, you don't, it doesn't really do anything to thicken, you know, to thicken the dal, for example. So, so silly question, but you can substitute it with fish sauce, but you wouldn't with similar, you know, as, as you call them, umami bombs, such as anchovies or dried shrimp. I, I would use anchovies. I would not use tomato paste or parmesan, for example. Right. I probably want something which is a bit fishy. A bit fishy. Yeah. Um, the second hard-to-get ingredient in the recipe is rampa. It's the Sri Lankan name for pandan leaves, which is a tropical plant, which is also known as cupine. Not easy to get. Even in London, if you go to a a North Indian shop, they will not necessarily carry it. The taste is somewhere between jasmine and vanilla. So you could boil some jasmine rice and use a bit of water. In our test, we, we used a drop of vanilla extract and it really added a subtle flavor, which combined really well with the coconut. And I think it's something that you shouldn't shy away from because it sounds quite strange and, you know, it's quite rare to see vanilla used in savory recipes, but it's really not sickly at all. It's really lovely. Run, it just works. So again, we start with a flavored lentil base, and it's a bit different from the other ones. It, it has that umami from the fish. It has some sliced green chilies, which is mild once you cook them. It has yeah, I was, um, I was sorry, I was a bit surprised by how mild the, the green chili came out in the recipe. I was expecting it to be a bit more fiery, but it was, it was quite pleasant. Yep, it has some lemongrass, some curry leaves, some raw onions, etc. And also, uh, most recipes have color added. Um, and in this one, it's saffron. It's not uh, saffron. It's saffron, not turmeric, as in many other recipes. <laughs> Stop it. Okay, they use second coconut milk for the base, but I was just happy. I'm just as happy with water. Uh, if you try to minimize your coconut intake, then just use water. Once the mix is cooked, they add the first coconut milk plus salt and boil for a couple of minutes. For the spicy topping, which is not that spicy, some of the previous ingredients are repeated. Onion, of course, but also rampa, again, lemongrass and curry leaves. No chilies. Uh, also, they use ghee, clarified butter, and not coconut oil. This adds another subtle layer of taste. So the whole thing is really yummy. Yeah, I really, really loved it. I think the, the, the warm flavors, the cinnamon... The vanilla, which is, you know, not the traditional recipe, but also the lemongrass. I mean, when would you have expected to put lemongrass in a, in a dal dish? I never would have thought. It's really nice. There you go. Restaurant, we both cooked that together and separately, and we, we had various tastes, uh, various tests, sorry. What's your take, Valentin? Okay, I think this one is the one I can see myself repeating most often because it's so easy. You just bang everything in the pot together. You put tomato, onion, curry leaves, your spices, everything. And so first of all, saves you uh, on a bit of the washing up and um, saves you doing some dishes. You know, obviously you, you have to fry off the spicy oil afterwards, which we'll talk about, but I think it's just the, the ease of it. I didn't know it could be this quick to make such a, a flavorful dish. It works. So just quickly to recap what happens in this recipe, the base is flavored with onion, curry leaves, and green chilies. So a bit like the previous recipe, but also there is some very roughly cut garlic, a bit of tomato. That, that doesn't really add much, but if you have some at hand, just use it. And <laughs> doesn't hurt. And the color is provided by the turmeric, however you pronounce it. At the coconut milk stage, there is more flavor and color added, curry powder and chili powder. 
The large quantity of coconut milk in the recipe and the video is boiled down with the lid off. As I've mentioned, I strongly recommend using less coconut, otherwise that's all you taste. Again, the risotto texture is, and the risotto approach, you know, is it works. You add small quantities of, liqu of liquid for taste, texture, and gloss. So about the coconut milk, so definitely agree that it can mask the flavor, but do you reckon that it's something that you can adjust? So. I mean, it's hard to imagine that you could have not enough because it's such a strong flavor. But if you wanted to add more, would you have a bit of a raw taste if you added it too late in the in the cooking process? I don't think that it actually cooks. I think that it simply evaporates and it adds gloss and fat. Yeah, I don't think it needs to cook as you know as an onion needs to cook. Right. So, so you could add, you could add you it could. towards the end. Yeah. Adjust. Again, the analogy, if you added some mascarpone to a, to a risotto, is just to add gloss and, and, and mouthfeel. And I think the coconut plays very much the same role. Actually, so the um, my North London doll recipe added uh, a bit of a bit of butter at the end. So I think the concept is the same. It's just that final touch for a luxurious finish. That's it. The whole world plays by the same rules. The spicy topic is quite spicy this time. It has mustard and cumin seeds, onion, garlic, dry red chilies which are great to add flavor, but you may not want to bite into one of them, you know, straight in. I have a, I have someone who I cooked this recipe for who would strongly agree, and he's also Italian from the north and isn't used to spicy foods, so I think he will strongly agree with that recommendation. Yeah, and also I would suggest replacing the chili powder with regular paprika. You would get the same color effect and you don't get the extra kick of extra chili powder. The result, when added to the parapu of this, of this spice, spice mix in oil it just works really well it complements it it gives you a variation on texture the spiciness is tempered by the coconut milk it just works so how liquid does your spicy topping have to be is it more of a crunchy you know crunchy onion and, and garlic and and chili or is it more of a, a a spicy oil i think the oil quantity needs to be reasonably high I mean, you don't want the, thing, the whole thing to swim in it, but uh, you will see from the video when they pour it on the on the paripu, it, it, it is a, you know, it's not just a drop of oil to allow you to fry. It's more than that. Uh, but you don't want a very greasy dish. So yeah, somewhere that you coat your pan, when the oil heats up and turns into water, like then you throw your ingredients, and you don't cook them too hot or too long, which is actually quite a segue, a good segue to uh, the tips section. Yes, tell me about your top tips. Okay, top tips. Number one, all recipes are based on 250 grams of dried red lentils, which is enough as a main for two or a side for three or four. Also, yep. I think dal is one of those foods that freezes quite well when, when once you've cooked it. So you can you could yeah. stock up. All, you just have to you just need to rehydrate it. You recreate it. Okay, number two, wash and soak. Lots of variation in the recipes on how you know how often how much to wash your lentils and how long to soak them for. What I've settled is one quick rinse to ensure that there is nothing wrong floating in the mix, and then fifteen minutes of soaking. Even if you didn't have any time to soak, just cook them a bit longer. Just just to give you an example of the flexibility of this recipe. Again, this is kind of these are pointers. You'll make up your own recipe. I didn't rinse mine because I forgot, and then I soaked them for three hours by mistake so and it was delicious so you know do as you do as you can if possible so next tip if possible use a non-stick pan this will allow you to use less water without the fear of having to scrap your pan afterwards okay you will probably use dried curry leaves because fresh ones are hard to find in in, in most cities and they only have a very mild taste 
And so go you know, be generous with the quantity that you use, probably above what they say in the recipes. Next tip, taste your lentils to be al dente. Now, we can you know, have various uh, religious discussions about how runny or al dente this should be. Well, so I would like to quote Massimo Bottura, the chef at this point, who usually says, well, I saw this in a video, he says, do you like to have your pasta al dente or overcooked? So those are the options. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. And that should take about 10 to 15 minutes. If you think they're too hard once you've added the coconut milk, just boil and stir for another minute or two with the lid off and you'll, you'll be fine. Next, cook the spicy topping on medium heat. There's nothing worse than bitter burnt garlic and burnt chilies will actually be quite unpleasant to breathe. So this is a last minute thing. The last minute thing, you prepare your base, you make it ready, and then you cook your, your spicy topping at the last second, but only on medium heat. I think, yeah, I think the temptation would be to make it quite metal. What's the, what's the temptation? Well, I was tempted when I made it to put it on really high heat because... I think that in my in the back of my mind, I had the idea of kind of a chili crisp, you know, these um, Asian spicy oils where you have really, really hot oil that you pour over, you know, garlic or chili or even green onion. And it's really delicious, but it's not the same thing. And so I think that um, I need to do it again to, to hone my skills in this different type of chili oil. Okay. And so that's it. That's it. You know, I think that the overwhelming recommendation is it is a flexible dish. It tastes great. It's very Moorish. It's very, it's very forgiving. It's you very know? forgiving. Lots of, yeah, lots of options and it will come out really nice, really great. So have fun. So bon appétit, enjoy cooking Paripu. Questions or comments on LinkedIn, please. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. And if you know a leader in any walk of life, you would like to be part of this program, get in touch. See you again in a couple of weeks. See you soon.